What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio.
Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the show, and thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Chi Love, here at From the Heart Radio, and the founder and CEO of Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing underprivileged children with basic necessities of life. I'm also a board-certified integrated holistic health energy psychology, positive psychology, and energy and vibrational sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where From the Heart Radio streams to you live each and every week, bringing you optimistic and uplifting information from interesting people, people who are making a positive impact in our world. And today, our guest is Frank Perensich, an internationally recognized leader in health and performance education. Frank earned his BA at Stanford University in human biology and neuroscience. He has over 30 years teaching experience in martial arts and health education, holds black belt rankings in karate and Aikido, and he's traveled to Africa on several occasions to study human origins in the ancestral environment. He is a regular columnist for Paleo Magazine and a featured teaching partner at Entheos Academy for Optimal Living. In 2012, Experience Life magazine named Frank as one of five visionaries leading the charge to better health and a healthier world. Frank is also the author of multiple books, including Beautiful Practice, The Exuberant Animal Experience, The Sapiens Curriculum, Beware False Tigers, and his most recent book, The Enemy is Never Wrong, which is our topic for discussion. So welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you for taking time to be here. It truly is such a great pleasure to have you join us on From the Heart Radio. How are you being? <laughs> I'm doing great, and I'm, I'm so happy to be on with you. This is a very exciting topic for me, so I'm enjoying it. This, it. this is crazy good stuff. You know, when I first read the title of your book, The Enemy is Never Wrong, I have to say, I thought, oh, come on. The enemy is a threat, an opposer, hostile the enemy is therefore always wrong. That's what I thought. However, I then read your book, and I must say, you offer both a fresh and healthy perspective on the matter. Your book is succinct. It is a quick read. And I will add, for me, and I think for probably others too, it's a fun read. Your writing keeps the reader curious in a state of expectancy and seeking more. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Part of the reason why is in the way you start your book. So I'm going to explain this a little bit. First, you have a paragraph written by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and foreign correspondent, Chris Hedges. The final line of which is, resistance is the pinnacle of human existence. Okay, so that set the stage a bit for me. Then I turned the page, only to find the poem, Hieroglyphic Stairway, written by poet, social activist, filmmaker, and founder of Planetize the Movement, Drew Dellinger. That's when I mm. thought, oh, wow, this is going to be good. Then <laughs> I began to read the foreword. And after the first paragraph, which was kind of horrifying, <laughs> it, it has to be less than 50 words, I thought to myself, oh, there is so much to learn from this book. And it turns out I was right. Because those choices, including works from these three gentlemen, in that order at the start of your book, before you even give the reader a taste for your own writing, I'm just going to say, what a way to get the reader primed, Frank. I don't think you could have chosen more wisely, and I must say, good job in setting the tone for the reader. Terrific title, great book. You know, please do tell us, what was the catalyst to you writing this particular book, The Enemy is Never Wrong? Such a great book. 
Well, thank you so much for the kind words. And I guess the, the origin story here goes back to my my apprenticeship in the traditional martial arts. And this goes back years ago. I, I had several just wonderful teachers. And there was one evening in the dojo, we were doing our drills and doing our exercises, and people were instructed to throw a punch or throw a kick at your, your partner or your opponent. And the the sensei said, and remember, the enemy is never wrong. And at the time, I was I was almost dumbfounded because I, I thought, wait a minute, that's that's a poignant thing to say. And what he was trying to tell us is that you got to remain fluid because you know the the opponent was instructed maybe to throw a punch with his right hand, but maybe you, your opponent did something different. Maybe your opponent tried to kick you or punched with the left hand. And so remain fluid, remain adaptable, remain adjustable, and don't get wrapped up in the emotion of what your enemy is supposed to be doing. And that's that was the origin for the book. That is is really amazing because you are uh, someone who does practice martial arts. But for those who have yet to read the book, I'd like to address a few things you speak about in your writing. The first is the martial education. This is not about learning self-defense techniques per se. It's not about mm -hmm. martial arts at all, really. I do love the reference of the term, though. So would you explain what you mean by martial education? Because that, to me, was fascinating. Right. Well, the way I said this up, you know, we arrive in adulthood and we find ourselves immersed in conflicts of various kinds, which range all the way from the interpersonal to government and work and romantic relationships and everything else. We find ourselves faced with these conflicts and then we might be inclined to think back, well, how did I wind up here and why am I struggling? Why am I suffering? Why didn't I learn how to deal with these conflicts? And if you come from a typical family, your mother said, don't fight. And your father said, don't lose. And that was it. That was, yeah. that was the full extent of our education for conflict. And then you, you go to school and there's really very little instruction in how to deal with conflict other than, whatever happens on the playground and the, the playground supervisor will tell us to be nice to one another. But that's it. There, there's no sophistication to it. And so we wind up in adulthood with this sort of black hole, this vacuum where we really could have learned some valuable lessons along the way. And so we stumble and we, we have trouble with it. And that's what I'm after here with this martial education. My traditional teachers would often reference, they would, they would talk about your martial artistry off the mat, the big martial artistry. That was what was most important. And that's what I'm getting at. You know, it's funny because even in yoga, we talk about many times in the teaching, from the teaching point of view, it's how you, you know, um, check out how you are on your mat. Observe how you are on your mat because the way that you are on your mat is usually how you are in your life. So if you're rushing mm -hmm. through the practice, you're not being patient. If you're, you know, and all those things add up, how you are on your mat is how you are in your life. And I think today more than ever, you know, in this world that, that our children are being brought up in, it has to be so very difficult with all that they have to endure to 
to not feel the bullying effects or anything like that. It's, it's happening across the board. And I think that's a reason why your book is so important now because it speaks so well to mental health wellness. And that to me is, is extreme. That's one of our, our pet passions at my children's foundation is the mental health wellness. And your book speaks to that well and how to actually build resist, resilience. Right. Yeah. And the, the mental health crisis is just, it's an elephant in the room for us now. And we we're struggling with it and we need everybody on board to, to help children. I mean, the, the, the challenges that they face are immense. And I think martial, a martial art orientation can be helpful. And in fact, I've talked to a lot of parents who the typical story is, you know, the young child is a real problem at school, real problem at home, can't focus, is bouncing off the walls, and then is enrolled at the local karate studio where they learn discipline and they learn to manage their bodies. And after six months of that, they're doing a lot better. They're doing better in school. They can focus better. And the, the benefits are really tangible. Yeah, and your book speaks to a lot of different things that we can do outside of that as well. But I think the children need – it needs to start with the parents so that they can build it up with the kids and the schools need to, to reinforce it and teach it at that level too so that, you know, there is a martial education, if you will, as you speak. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, um, one of the journeys to – I loved the part about the journey to focus and the stages therein. The first being our normal life. The second is the realization that, and I believe you coined the acronym WAS as in Sam, F as in Frank, which since this is not prime time, I'm going to slightly change where we are so fractured. That isn't the word you use, but it's close. (laughs) And, And then to the next stage, in this case, we are so focused, also a WASF. So you, you have that acronym for two different situations. Would you tell us about that whole, the, the stages and the, the going from we are so fractured going into we are so focused, if you would? Right. And this is, I think, the journey that a lot of people are on when they confront adulthood and the the challenges of adulthood and especially our ecological crisis now, the state of the biosphere, and it's so easy to get pulled down into what I call a quagmire, the, the quagmire of mental health challenges, including depression, anxiety, and everything else. And we look at the world, we look at trajectories of different trends of deforestation and uh, global warming and the the demise of the oceans and biodiversity and everything else. And it's very easy to to lose hope and to come to the conclusion, we are so fractured, we are so fragmented. And people – will sometimes exist in that state for a very long time. So what we as activists encourage people to do is say, okay, look, don't agonize, organize. Try and get some kind of focus to your activity, and that is very helpful. Activism can be extremely therapeutic for people because now you have that focus and you're part of a group. We're doing the work, and that can pull us out of the quagmire. So that's, that's what I'm after there. But it's also appropriate activism, correct? 
Right. Any old activism isn't really going to move the needle, but we have to be sapient about it. We have to be intelligent about it, and we have to think clearly and deeply about what we're doing. Just waving a protest sign isn't going to do it. We need to be um, intelligent with our activism, too. And peaceful, because we've seen a lot of activism in the recent years that it's just not peaceful. Right. Nonviolence is absolutely the way to go. And this has um, this has been worked out by people going back to Gandhi and now Extinction Rebellion in the UK. This is very much the way to go. And we need to keep that in mind. Okay, so I have an interesting question here from a listener. It says, okay, why are you guys glossing over the enemy is never wrong? What do you mean by the enemy is never wrong? I didn't think we were glossing over it, so I apologize for that. <laughs> but go ahead and, and explain, explain the enemy is never wrong and what you need, mean by that. And it's probably because I read the book and I get it, but I get that the listening audience didn't, everybody didn't read the book yet. So what do you mean by, explain what you mean by the enemy is never wrong? <laughs> Who's the enemy? <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's an orientation more than anything else. Now, it's very much the case that there are perpetrators of violence in the world and that these people are wrong. These organizations are wrong, morally wrong, ethically wrong. But from an individual perspective, from a psychological orientation, we need to set that aside for the moment. And we need to say, okay, this behavior of my opponent, it may be reprehensible, it may be completely immoral and unethical, but it just is. And now let's take a deep breath, let's step back from that, here's the behavior of my opponent, and I'm not going to get emotionally um, paralyzed by that, I'm going to remain fluid and work with whatever it is the enemy is. That's the martial art approach. That is the meditative approach That's that comes out of the Eastern philosophy. And it, it's very valuable. And I, I think a lot of us learn this as we become adults and we have more experience with conflict. But what I'm trying to do is make it explicit. And I think, you know, as you read the book, when you're going through it, you realize, because the first thing, you know, when I got the, the as I said at the beginning of the show, when I got the uh, book from Zach, I looked at it and went, the enemy is never wrong. Well, that's not right. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's the first thing you think is the enemy is the enemy. So they have to be wrong. Yes, according to me, but not according to them. So it's a matter of looking at both sides of the story, both perspectives, and being able to handle that in a mature and a a way that there is no conflict and there is no war. It's just trying to work it out in a way that you understand their side, they understand yours, but that doesn't mean because you, if they're the enemy to me, then by golly, I'm probably the enemy to them. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's a good insight. Yes. I mean, it's true, right? You know, so I'm somebody's enemy and they're my enemy. And that doesn't mean in my eyes, I'm not wrong, but that doesn't mean, I'm necessarily right. And in their eyes, they're not wrong, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily right. There's got to be some kind of compromise. And I think it's so hard to explain this. When you're reading the book, you're, you, you feel like you're in it. You, you have mm-hmm. a way of writing that draws the reader into it, and you're living this in the writing of the book. And as I said, it's a very quick 
read. I mean, this book is like only, you know, 200 pages long or something. It's not that long, mm-hmm. but they're, mm-hmm. they're, it's big typeface. So it goes very quickly and it's so interesting and it, you're in it, you feel it and you understand it. It's almost like because you're immersed in it, you understand it. Well, thank you. <laughs> and <laughs> another way to, uh, another way to understand this, I think is, it would be great if people could enroll in a martial arts dojo and do the training and have that experience. I, I recommend that for people. But even if you don't, I mean, even if you've never had that experience, you can imagine what it might be like. You go into the dojo and you square off with your partner and you're supposed to do a particular technique. And just imagine the flexibility and adaptability that you might be able to bring to that encounter. And when you train with people, they're all different. They move in different ways, and they don't always do what you expect them to do. So train your body to be integrated and whole, but also fluid and adaptable. That's the ideal. Yes, and being adaptable is key. I have another <laughs> another listener who, you know, this is funny because I never do this. I never bring, I, it's rare that there are questions, but I must be doing something not so great tonight because I have someone else who said, T, why, are you, why did you say the first paragraph in the foreword was horrific? <laughs> and I don't use that word lightly. I think my listeners know this, but it's not, it's, it's not even 50 words, I bet, as I look at it. I, I, I'm going to read it. And I want to see if any of my listeners also agree with me as to why I felt this was horrific. And I'll get your perspective. You know what it is, but I'm going to read it just to refresh your memory, Frank. Is that okay with you? Go ahead. Okay. So the foreword, it starts, the environmentalist and feminist writer, Lear Keith, has written, if there's anyone left alive 100 years from now, they're going to ask what was wrong with us that we didn't fight like hell when the world was going down. That's the whole paragraph. And I read mm-hmm. that and thought, wow, okay, that, that is, I don't want that question posed upon me. <laughs> you know, that's the part I thought was horrific because it really, that right there, it, it makes you think it's extremely thought provoking. What the hell did we do? How are we leaving this world for our children? That paragraph, those few words were just so insightful. And I don't know, when you asked him to write the foreword for you, and then you read it, did that hit you? Did that feel like a sucker punch almost? Well, yes, although I've heard other writers speak the same way. I've heard other people say, look, the the, the eyes of the future are looking back at us and asking, why didn't you act? Why didn't you fight? And yeah, ever since Greta Thunberg appeared on the scene, I've been really interested in what young people are doing and especially what young people are feeling. I, I work with a Fridays for Future group here in Bend, Oregon, and so I'm really curious about what, you know, they're facing a future very different than the one I faced when I was young. And so I really have a sensitivity for that now. What are they seeing when they look at the world? What kind of skills are they going to need to inhabit that? And it's, uh, it is frightening for them. It is. And as I said, that was the third person who addressed the same issue in your book before we even got to your writing, because right before that, Drew Dillinger, Dillinger had written, it's 3.32 in the morning and I'm awake because my great 
great-grandchildren won't let me sleep, and my great-great-grandchildren ask me in dreams, what did you do while the planet was plundered? What did you do when the earth was unraveling? Surely you did something when the season started falling, as the mammals, reptiles, birds were all dying. Did you fill the streets with protest when democracy was stolen? What did you do once you knew? Uh, you know, yes. I, I, I can't help but still get goosebumps as I, you know, first yep. it was the, yep. the Chris Hedges, then Drew Dellinger, then the foreword, and then I get into your book. And, you know, it, it just really does give you goosebumps. And that's why that the third person was the one where I looked at and went, this is horrific. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and the Dellinger quote is so spot on. What did you do once you knew? And yeah. That's a, that's a koan for our age. Now, a lot of people don't know. But a lot of people don't understand the urgency and the magnitude of this ecological crisis. They don't know the details, and they don't know how fast-moving this is and how catastrophic it can be. And if you don't know, well, then you can, you can kind of be forgiven. But more and more people do know, and then the question, what did you do once you knew? And that's that's hanging in the air for for everybody now. It is, and I I I I have difficulty understanding that there are people who aren't getting it. I, I have difficulty with that because I'm like it's all around us. We see everything that's falling apart, and it progressed very quickly. I mean, the it, the trajectory just went faster and faster the past three or four years. So at the start of the pandemic, it's just been you know. Holy rolling right down the road, and you're seeing all these different things happen every day. It gets worse and worse. How can yes. you not be aware? How can you not be aware and see this? And what did, what did we do in the past? How can we correct it? These are horrifying questions. They really are because we're being put to the test. Our feet are to the fire. What did you do? What are you going to do? And we still have, if you're here living on the earth, you still have time to do something. Yes, and everybody has some capability. I know a lot of people feel powerless and a lot of people have no economic power, no political power, and they, all of that is true. But the future is made of decisions and choices, and everybody is making choices every day. I mean, if you add up 8 billion people making hundreds of decisions every day, there's trillions of decisions being made all the time. Those decisions being driven by our values and story. And so everybody has some power. And this is an all hands on deck situation. I mean, we need 8 sure. billion activists. Yeah. We need everybody yeah, to participate. And you did this so well in your book because you wrote having an opinion or a point of view isn't enough to fully to truly be an activist. You refer to that as armchair activism or better still inactivism. So you wrote activism is about much more than political protest and civil disobedience. It's about how we choose to live even when no one is looking. That is so astute. It is simple. It is easy to understand, but for me, most importantly, it is simple to put into practice with awareness. So, right, you know, right. the fact that you, you, you don't have to be out there protesting and doing what other people, I, I've been asked a number of times, will you come protest with us? And I'm like, no, first of all, you asked me to protest for a cause I don't believe in. So, uh-uh. Second of all, too many people have guns. I don't want to die. So I don't go yeah, yeah. protest, <laughs> you know, but, but there are ways to do things. So it is, it's, it's how we choose to live 
when even when no one is looking. Would you elaborate mm-hmm. on that a bit? Right. Well, there's personal lifestyle choices and personal orientations that, you know, we've all heard about, whether it is uh, eating less meat or taking shorter showers or using fossil fuels less, that kind of thing. And we, we can all do our part there. But I think it's also kind of stories that we listen to, the stories that we tell one another about who we are and what our place is in the world. And that's another place where we have choice and we have power. We are fed a nearly constant stream of what I call plastic narratives. These are the the consumeristic narratives that come to us through our devices all the time. And we don't have to subscribe to those. We could, we could use other narratives to explain who we are and our role in the world. So, there is activism that is not explicit. There is activism that is not overt out in the street, and we can all do that. I also think it's it's a it's a matter of the ripple that you put out. Correct that the fact that it, just because someone comes at you, attacks you, if you will, or not even an attack, says something that doesn't gel right with you, it doesn't feel good, doesn't mean you have to turn around and say something nasty or back. Kindness compassion, empathy. These are the things that make a difference and set a totally different ripple out into the world that's positive. It sends out these positive effects that help to lift other people. And by doing that, you're taking an action that's really good and healthy for the planet as a whole. Do you agree with that? Right. And this is where it gets really interesting because no matter what kind of activism that you might be doing, you're up against hyper-complex systems, whether they're organizations or political parties or companies or even people. Their nervous systems, their brains are hyper-complex systems, and it's really hard to predict how people will respond to anything that we do. So in a sense, the only thing we really have control over is how we show up in the world. And that's another lesson from the martial arts because most martial art teachers, yoga teachers, spiritual teachers all around the world are always saying, look, it's about how you show up. You can't control the ultimate ripple effects of of your behavior in the world, but you can control how you show up. And that's going to have, that's going to have a cascading effect too. Yes. And a good one when it's positive. So when it's not, sometimes the best action to take is to take no action when in fact you're not, feeling like you're going to take a positive action. Sometimes it's best to, the best action is to just to stop, take a deep breath and say, I, I need time to think about this and walk away. And that's the best action that you can possibly take. Right. Not and so sometimes you, you don't have to engage every enemy and every opponent. You Sometimes you can sidestep. And this is a, the lesson that we learn in Aikido. In Aikido, we it's a soft style, and there's a lot of blending and redirection of force. And you sidestep, you move laterally out of the way, and you don't necessarily have to engage the opponent. And it's, it's a very beautiful art in that sense. And the metaphor is fantastic because you don't have to meet force with force. Sometimes you can meet it with creativity. 
Yeah, it's what I call don't poke the bear. Yeah, I live in bear country. And the first thing I took a class when we first moved here because I thought, oh, my God, we live in bear country. I, you know, I didn't have bears in Massachusetts to worry about, but now they're climbing up trees. So now I have to look up when I go outside to see, are there any bears? It's not birds I'm looking for. I'm looking to see if there's a bear <laughs> in a tree. And, you know, they're big black bears. And they tell you, you know, just sidestep, walk away. Don't confront them. Don't look at their eyes. It's the same thing. You know, don't mm-hmm. poke the bear. Even though the bear came upon you, you know, they don't care. They're going to attack you because they have cubs with them just because they came upon you. So if they happen upon you, then just walk away. Don't look at them. Make yourself big. Just don't poke the bear. It's the same thing. You know, nature is a beautiful thing. We can learn a lot. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, my goodness. You also wrote that, uh, you know, we – we ourselves are our own enemy and how we need to keep an eye toward awe. I loved this part because I believe in this so much. It makes so much sense. So tell our listeners why it's so important to know that you need to keep an eye toward awe, A-W-E, awe. A-W-E, yes. This is fascinating to me because I'm kind of a a nature boy and I've always loved the outdoors and I've climbed some mountains and spent nights out on, on big mountains and that kind of thing. And so I've experienced the awe, but now there's all this uh, scientific research coming out to prove that having these experiences of awe, it has really beneficial effects for the human body and our experience in the world. It makes us feel better. It reduces narcissism. It makes us more pro-social. It gives us a greater sense of, of uh, abundance, especially in terms of time. We feel like we have more time available. All of these things are really good for us. And this is fascinating because if you look at human history, growing up, in East Africa, South Africa, living outdoors in prehistory, we would have been in a state of awe much of our lives, much of the time. If you're living outdoors, you see the the stars at night, you see the thunderstorms, you see the lightning strikes, all of this. We were in a state of awe most of our lives, and now things are different. So we have to make an effort now to get outdoors and see those those awe-inspiring events. And actually acknowledge them, be present with them instead of just walking down the street and being on your phone, which so many people do. There's too much technology. People, when, even when they're out in nature, sometimes you'll see people, you know, if, if you go for a walk or you're on a hike, somebody may have their phone. And you think, why are you even bothering? You know, why, why are you even bothering with yourself if you can't? When I have people come into a room and, and I'm the speaker, I will say to them, if, if you're here for the purpose of relaxing and calming down and listening to me play my quartz crystal singing bowls, then you don't need your phones. If your phone is on, I will kick you out if I hear it go off. You have, you know, take the time for you. Everybody paid the same price. Don't take it away from somebody else. You are not here. So, yeah, that I think where too many people are just too tied into, I got to get it done now. I, I'm always on call. I'm very important to other people. And I have to say, I'm sorry, but I don't think anybody's all that important to anybody else that they have to be on 24-7, 365. So, you know, I always get emails about that. That's okay. <laughs> right. No, I agree completely. And it, it's a real pet peeve of mine because, as I see it, we have kind of fallen in love with the wrong things now. And we're, mm-hmm. we're completely enchanted with the phones and the screens. And 
to be honest, they're not that interesting to me. I think the human body is far more interesting. You know, the hand that holds the phone is a million times more amazing than the phone itself. And yet we forget that because the body is so familiar to us that it becomes boring. And the phone is novel. It's new. And so we become enchanted with it. And that's a big mistake. We need to remember the capacity of the body and and the awe that goes with it. Absolutely we do. You know, I, I want to um, talk about the questions that you have as an activist that they must ask in advance before engagement. However, at this point, I want to do what we call our break for Soji Share. It's time for that. Mm-hmm. So this is where we share stories about kids from all over the planet who, you know, they're not just filled with hope, but they're motivated, they're creative, focused, passionate, and they want to make a difference in the world. So our goal at SojiKids.org is to spread joy, hence our name Soji, which is an acronym for sharing our joy intentionally. And this week, our Soji share is a young lady whose name is Sophie Cruz. Sophie is one of the youngest activists in the world. Her parents were undocumented migrants from Mexico living in the United States. And when Sophie was five, one hand, five, this many, five, (laughs) the you know, she wanted to do something to help her undocumented parents after realizing that they couldn't visit her grandfather in Mexico without facing trouble at the border. So do something she did in a very big way. After traveling with her family to see the Pope in a parade, she tried to run through security barriers, but she was, you know, held back. However, she finally did get through, and the Pope noticed her, and he allowed her to approach So she ran to him, she hugged him, and she handed him a letter that she prepared. And in the letter, she detailed how she was very worried about her parents being deported, and she begged the Pope for help. And I'm going to read you the part of the letter because it's hard to imagine someone so young could write these moving words and speak with such eloquence at the age of five. Sophie wrote, don't forget about us, the children, or about those who suffer because they're not with their parents because of war, because of violence, because of hunger. She wrote those words, and then she managed to not just get the attention of the Pope, but rather to meet him and hand him her letter. Now, needless to say, or maybe I do need to say, Sophie made quite an impression. And the Pope read her letter, and the very next day, while speaking before Congress, he brought up the immigration issue, encouraging them to be more open-minded and compassionate toward immigrants and refugees. Now, apparently, word spread about her because one year later, At the ripe old age of six, Sophie was invited to speak at the Washington Women's March. She accepted and spoke in front of tens of thousands of people. She began her speech, and I quote, We are here together making a chain of love to protect our families. Let us fight with love, faith, and courage so that our families will not be destroyed. I also want to tell the children not to be afraid because we are not alone. And I must repeat myself, it is incredible that at that time, when she was just six years old, she not only wrote those words, but she gave her speech in both English and Spanish. And again, in front of tens of thousands of people. So clearly, she's also not shy, and she hasn't stopped either. She has visited the White House, sat in Supreme Court hearings, campaigned for people to vote, and she's often done so without her parents, which made me wonder, Wait a minute, why is she doing this without her parents? She's, she's only six years old. The reason is because her parents' immigration status, they were fo- forced to wait outside. So they didn't get to see their daughter lead 
our leaders. And that is truly a shame. But regardless, Sophie keeps on going, and now she's 12 years old. And this incredible child turned teen has inspired people around the world. She educates others about immigration, showing how she, as an American citizen, may be separated from her parents if a path to citizenship is not established by Congress. But more than that, she's become a symbol for hope. And she had film director, activist, author, artist, and co-founder and artistic director for the 2017 Women's March, Paula uh, Mendoza, said of Sophie, at the age of six, Sophie Cruz is our nation's conscience. She is our movement's inspiration. She is one of our leaders. She is why we fight. And as a young person directly affected by the country's immigration policy, Sophie's voice gives non-immigrants a much-needed perspective on the human impact of the issue. And as a leader, she inspires other young girls to also make their voices heard. And as part of an embattled community, she reminds others like her that there is power in numbers. So kudos to this week's Soji Share, Sophie Cruz, a young lady who is most certainly creating a significant, positively impactful ripple in this world. You know, this is the good stuff that's happening all over the world. And these good things are coming from our children who are getting involved in causes with positive and attainable goals to improve situations and resolve issues. And this is just one example of how kids are making our world better. Our children have creative minds and imaginative reach, enabling them to be successful. Their age allows them to ignore any limitations and see with a pure heart. They don't think of themselves as limited at all. The things children start are absolutely unique in their approach, and they serve as an inspiration for everyone. So once again, kudos to this week's Soji Share, Sophie Cruz. Okay, we are back with Frank Forensic, author of The Enemy is Never Wrong. You can learn more about Frank by visiting his website, exuberantanimal.com. And I'm going to spell that for you. It's E-X-U-B-E-R-A-N-T-A-N-I-M-A-L.com. So write that down now so you can check it out after the show. Now, before our Soju Share, we were talking about how important it is to make sure that we are constantly keeping an eye toward awe. But I wanted to get into some of the questions that Frank, I believe it was nine essential questions that an activist must, must ask in advance before engagement. And those, I think, are good for anybody. You don't even have to be an activist. You can just be sitting at home and, and use this on almost any situation, I'm going to guess. The first one was question the predicament that you're in. So tell us about that. <laughs> well, all of these questions, I, I kind of preface this by saying that curiosity is our superpower here because the enemy, you might say, is impulsivity. And that's where the body gets overloaded, the nervous system goes into fight flight, and we're feeling threatened, and we're not sure why, because the body is not verbal, the body just does things. And so we can, we can put that off by asking questions, especially about our predicament. What kind of predicament is it that you, that you are in? Is it an interpersonal one? Is it marked by, is it a workplace issue? What is the nature of it? And those questions will go a long way to helping you craft the best response and to 
to get past this impulsivity that that so often ruins our day. Yeah, because if you just take those few moments, you can frame it properly, and you'll be effective. But as you said in your book, frame it wrong, and you're going to get into trouble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we all do it. Yeah, we do. And, and sometimes we learn yeah. from it, and sometimes we don't. <laughs> right. And, and, then, and I just – I just pitch this as uh, the who, what, where, when, why, and how of fighting. And those are the questions that we never learned to ask when we were in school. And so we would simply get in fights and we'd leapfrog over the, uh, the investigation, you might say. And that would be a great course for kids and, and for people in college, too. It's like, let's sit down. We'll do the who, what, where, when, why, how of fighting and see what you come up with rather yeah. than just getting – instead of just getting angry, for example. Right, because then instead of fighting, you're actually debating. And although they call these things debate clubs, a lot of kids don't want to do that because they figure they can't or they're never going to have the need or it's boring. But this is – you know, if you – say to someone, learn how to fight or learn how to, you know, conquer, whatever it is, taking your power back, however you want to say it, I think you'd get more kids to enroll in those classes based on just how it's mm -hmm. marketed, if you will. Yeah. Yep. Right. Now, right. The, the second question you have is question the history. And people look at that and think, well, what if there is no history? But there usually is. Am I wrong? There's usually a history, if not together with that person, but with yourself in the same pattern coming up over and over again. Oh, yeah. There's always a history, whether it's the history of the human body or the history of the culture that you inhabit, the process that you are a part of. And what makes that interesting is that history is incredibly powerful. I mean, we are, we are swept up in that. And we may not be as powerful as we would like to be, but you've got to know the history. Otherwise, it feels like you're just parachuting into the world. And this is, I think, a common problem for young people because when we teach history in school, a lot of times it comes across as just a bunch of facts, and it, we don't feel the power of it, the power of human history, the power of society. And so... Yeah, the study of history is vital to anything that we might want to do as activists. And and you have to question the history. How did the situation come to be? It could be as easy as, okay, this has been politically going on for 50 years, 60 years, 1,000 years, who knows? And it's just a belief that different groups of people have. Or it can be your own history that's maybe, you know, two years old. Right. And, and this is where the um, – Understanding trauma, I think, is so important because this is – we're now beginning to realize that childhood trauma is extremely widespread and maybe universal, and it's, it affects people throughout their entire lives. So that, that's a historical point of view that is really important now. The, this one fellow that I follow, his name is Gabor Mate. And this is the point he makes in his teaching about trauma is that it's extremely widespread and it has consequences that ripple throughout the entire lifespan. So you may get involved in a conflict with somebody. You're actually working with, with history. 
And you're also working with your next two questions when you say question your education and training, which is really why we have the belief systems we do because we get that from our parents and then those who are others who have taught us are, you know, not only our elders but our peers. And question the terrain. What domain am I operating in? You know, what are the power mm-hmm. relationships? So all of that falls under what you had just said about history. Right. Yes. And again, this is where we fail to ask the questions. We just get angry and then we react. And the the phrase we hear sometimes is, is to be active, not reactive. And that's putting some space between the stimulus and the response. And this is what meditation teachers are always talking about. Mm-hmm. They say, get, in, get inside that space between the stimulus and the response, and that's where the freedom lies. That's where the creativity lies, and that's why meditation is powerful because what you're doing is say, okay, I'm not going to be reactive for the next five minutes or ten minutes or whatever it is. And if you have experience in doing that, there's a better chance that you're going to be less reactive out in the world. Which is actually questioning, like, the human animal. hmm Right? Yes. I mean, yes. that's what you're doing. The questioning, the, what is it about the human animal and human behavior? I mean, are we rational creatures? I don't think so. I think we're pretty, we're irrational primates. And we, we come up with a lot of behaviors that outwardly don't seem to make a whole lot of sense and they can be confusing and and troubling. But um, yeah, this is, this is our history. You know, we are mammals, we are primates, we are hominids yep. <laughs> and we behave yeah. in certain characteristic ways. You know? And that's it, it, the other thing that I, I advise people to do, especially coaches and therapists and that thing is to treat people like animals. In other words, pay attention to their bodies, pay attention to their autonomic nervous systems, make sure that they feel calm and taken care of. And if you can do that, then you've got a chance to move on to the next step, whatever it is. Right, because those are that's where you're questioning your adversaries. What do they value? What are their interests and positions? You know, what kind of power mm-hmm. do they have? What motivates them? What are their objectives? Um, These are all Mm -hmm. so interesting, the main question that you have, and then you have these other questions underneath them in your book, and it really teaches the person, for instance, question your adversaries, what do they value? It it puts the perspective on the other person so that you take it off of how you're feeling, and you're able to more feel into what they have. Right, right, and that speaks to the, the polarization in the modern political world is that we aren't listening very much to the needs of the other side and the, the values of the other side, and we're just locked into this this polarity, and there's not a whole lot of listening going on. So, that, again, that gets back to the Aikido metaphor where in order to blend with your opponent, you have to understand and you have to be sensitive to who they are, what they're doing, and what the trajectory is of their movement. And the the more sensitive you can be, the better chance you have of blending with their attack. And you're in their own culture as well, because we all come from different backgrounds. You know, what are our rituals and beliefs? Is it new? Does it have a long tradition? You know, 
why can't, why is mine right and yours wrong or yours right and my right? It doesn't make sense. Everybody's got their own way of doing things. So it, it, it leads to that as well, to question that and put the perspective again back on, well, what's their thing? You might learn something, you know, you might learn something good if you start looking at their culture. Right. And then you, it, you might find yourself getting involved with um, human universals. And this I find really fascinating because there's an anthropologist out there who's collected this. He's written a book called Human Universals, and he's identified these features of every human culture around the world. And that's a great place to focus on because it, it doesn't matter where you're from. If you are a human, you have an interest in being healthy, you have an interest in your family, you have an interest in your future, you have an interest in your world, and these apply no matter where you are and who you are. So that's a good place to focus. That is a great place to focus. And then I loved the question you had about question your sources because people don't right now. People are not yeah. questioning sources. They're seeing things online. And there used to be a commercial where uh, a guy pretended he was French who was trying to pick up a girl or something, and he said he saw something online. And, of course, we all know that every single thing that's online is absolutely gospel. And, you know, <laughs> I, it drives me crazy because there's so many conspiracy theories that, uh, theories that people just buy into because, well, so-and-so said, yeah, but did you check it out? Did you do any research? How do they know? How do you know? What you know, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. checking, questioning your sources. Where does that information come from? Are they reliable? Are they cross-checked against other standards of knowledge, or are they just pumped into your brain because your digital feed is telling you to read it and believe it? Because that's where you have a tendency, which brings you back to your own culture and your own education and training. Right, right. It's so easy to fall back into the familiar, whatever it is you grew up with. That's familiar. It must be true, you know. But the, but skepticism is a very important tool to cross-check everything you believe. So yeah, you know, I'm too much of a scientist. Yeah. I'm, I'm too much of a scientist. I think that that's. <laughs> I question everything. I'm like, okay, really? They said what? <laughs> How do you know that? Where yes. did it come from? Who told you that? Did yes, they give yes. you, did they cite anything? Were there any studies done? I mean, you know, yeah, I'm a crazy person like that. Um, and then your final question was questioning your motives. And I love this one because really, what are the motives? And if you look at anything I've deduced down to <laughs> in my own way, the motives are usually greed, control, and power. Those are the three motives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> everything from price gouging at the grocery store to any kind of belief that's out there, to anything that SCOTUS is doing or POTUS is doing, it doesn't matter. It's greed, power, and control. And you have to look at that and say, well, how do I behave when I'm under stress? And what am I trying to create? That's probably mm -hmm. the best question in your book. What are you trying to create? Yes, yes. And maybe that's the art in martial artistry because if you – identify as an artist, even in some small measure, then that's the question. What am I trying to create? And that's another tragedy, I think, in the modern world is so many people just assume that they're not creative. They say, well, I'm not a creative person or I'm not an artist. And I disagree with all that. I, if you're mm -hmm. a human, you've got some creative potential. And that's the question. What am I trying to create today or this year or in this lifetime? And that's, that's a good guiding question. 
It's a great question because what people don't realize when they say, well, I'm not creative. I'm not talking about DIY crafts here. You know, I'm talking Mm -hmm. about what are you trying to create for your life? Because in every single moment, we are creating something. Every single moment. It's a choice. Is it positive or is it negative? Is it egotistical or is it for the collective whole? What is Mm -hmm. it that you're trying to create? And you always have the opportunity to stop and take a breath and take a moment to say, I need to think this through a little bit before I react, but just so that Mm -hmm. I act positively moving forward. That's the best question. What are you trying to create? And explain the word create. Because I agree with you 100%. Yes, and I mean, you can always change course, too. You know, creators, artists are kind of working in the dark a lot of times. They don't know exactly what it is that they're trying to create, but you put it out there, you take the risk, you make the effort, and if it's not going the right way, well, you change and you create something different, but um, the the effort is essential. Absolutely it is. Oh, my goodness, Frank, Mm -hmm. we're almost out of time, but before we go... I would love it if you would tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and your work and where they may purchase your book, The Enemy is Never Wrong. Right. Well, if you, I think if you just type in the title, you'll find it. That's, that's easy. But I would encourage people to go to the website because that's where I've got the other books there as well, plus some videos on various projects. But it's exuberantanimal.com, which is spelled just like it sounds, E-X-U-B-E-R-A-N-T animal.com and that's um, that's got everything including a link to my most recent project which is called activism is medicine and that's a related project but i think it's going to have uh, its own life you might say so all of it's there. That's, that yeah that's great and there is there's a plethora of information on the site so go check that out everyone again it's exuberantanimal.com and, gosh, Frank, really, thank you so much for being here. This was such a pleasure to speak with you. I, I absolutely loved your book. It was so great. It's so insightful. And, again, listeners, it's a quick read, It's but it's so moving. You will get a lot out of it. You'll be in it as you read it. You'll get a lot, really, you'll get a lot out of it. So do go and check out the book, The Enemy is Never Wrong. Order it, Amazon, local bookstore, wherever. Thank you, Frank, so much. If you just hold on a couple of seconds, I'll be back with you, okay? Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Now it's your turn to do some good. We need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on From the Heart Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a most challenging and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I do to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we're meant to live productively healthfully, and purposefully. And this is where you find the tools to do just that. So please share what you heard by sending the link for the show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they may learn and grow and make the world a better place for all. Please also check out Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, where every dollar of every donation directly supports children in need, 100%. We're run solely by volunteers. There are no salaries to anyone. There's no overhead of any kind. Every penny directly supports children. And right now we're helping subsidize the cost of mental health sessions for children who might not otherwise receive this much-needed therapy. So if you do not have strong mental health, You cannot learn or function well at all. Children need our help, and together we can provide it. So please make a donation to SojiKids.org. Your donation makes a difference. 
Every dollar matters, and you can be part of making that difference. At Soji Huggles, we are investing in a brighter tomorrow by giving them a better today. So visit our website, SojiKids, S-O-J-I-K-I-D-S dot org, and make that donation now. Thank you. Please follow us on Twitter at Soji Huggles. While you're in your social media accounts, please be sure to like us on Facebook, Soji Huggles Children's Foundation. We leave you with our From the Heart Radio's thought for this week by Alice Walker. Activism is the rent I pay for living on this planet. And that quote can be found on page 46 of Frank's book, The Enemy is Never Wrong. I am your host, T-Love, at From the Heart Radio, intending you and yours a most enjoyable week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News and World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.